You know, every now and then there's a sermon that I feel like I know something that y'all don't know, and today is that day. Um, This is our second grand opening, and we are so excited um, to share it. And if you are new uh, to our church, welcome uh, to the family. After last Sunday's uh, grand opening service, uh, one of my dear friends, our finance pastor, we were out in the lobby and we captured a kind of a candid moment. And um, I just want to share this with you at this time. All right, we made it. Look, look, all the things. Grand opening Sunday is now completed and... Woo! <laughs> if you've never heard uh, Ben, woo! Uh, I... I, I can't do that. So there's something like he has a special talent there. Um, but you can imagine if you waited uh, 20 years uh, for something. And, and I feel like um, somebody said it in the first service, and this is the way I uh, feel this week and um, the way I posted, I think, yesterday. But uh, it feels like we've been on a journey, 20 years we've been walking in order to get home. And there's something about when a church takes ground and launches and and builds a base that the kingdom uh, can change now exponentially. And I feel like, I feel like we're home church. Do you guys, do you guys agree? So if you're a guest with us today, uh, I hope that you would consider uh, joining us and we are unwrapping, um, unpacking our promises, which are our core values. Uh, Last week we talked about we promise to preach the word, and today we're going to be talking about we promise to love you more than you deserve. We promise to love you more than you deserve. Now, I know it kind of sounds a little strange because you might say, well, I think I deserve love. Well, I think when you understand it from a theological perspective that uh, we're going to go through and, and look at some levels of love, but that Jesus loved more than we deserve. And whenever we think about uh, different levels of love, uh, if we start off at the base level, like the love for inanimate objects, right? Like many of us might love food, okay? So here's my, here's my favorite food, okay? Uh, that is Alaskan king crab and steak, okay? Um, so that's, that's me. Like if you say, Tim, what does heaven taste like? All right, this this is what I get excited about. And I think there's something about, like, I like to, like, do the actual cracking, you know? Like, I think I feel like more of a man, you know? Like, I got to snap this in half and tear this food out, and I'm back to hunter-gatherer, you know? Um, so, anyway, uh, take that off of there. But, man, when you get a nice piece of crab meat and you get, like, the whole thing and you dip it in the butter and then put oh, that's just, oh, it's so good. I don't know. If you've never had it, then you need, to, you need to try it sometime. But there's love for that. There's love, you know, for our hobbies. This is, this is just a base level of love. You know, like we're like, I love to play golf. I love to fish. Whatever it is you love to do. Um, and then your next level up would be kind of like the, the friendship love. We might call it like love you, bro. Like, you know, you ever like see your friends like, hey, love you, bro. Um, and so it's not, it's not a high level of love because like those people are going to move in and out of the picture, you know, but it's a, it's a friendship level love and we all have love for our friends. Um, and then we move up to the, um, I love you because I have to, um, and that's, that's family. Okay. And so you, you all have, when you really think about it, family's crazy, um, because you have people that you love in your family, that if they were just a normal person, you would never talk to that person. You would, 
you would never hang out. You wouldn't go visit them, like, because they're not a nice person at all, but like, ah, they're family, you know, and, and let's be honest, some of you, your, your mother loves you because they have to, right? And so that's a, that's a, that's a level of love, okay? And then when we get up to the, the highest level of love on the human level, uh, that is the, the marriage uh, love, because marriage love is, is something that is completely different. You don't love them because you have to. You love them because you choose to, and you choose to love them in spite of their flaws, in spite of their faults. Um, as a matter of fact, we had one of our staff members, our beloved Nolan Spann, in, got engaged. Got in, we refer to him as Noli Bear. I have no idea why. Um, but, but he got engaged this week, and, and, and you could tell that, you know, he's in the first stage of this love because <laughs> still smiling. You guys remember that? Like, those of us have been married a long time, we don't look like that anymore, you know? It's like, it's like <laughs> I love you. I love you so much. Um, so uh, whenever we think about that type of love, you know, that's, that's the type of love that that we aspire to, and Jesus actually uses love in marriage as a metaphor for his relationship to us. He says that um, Christ is like the, the bridegroom and the church is the bride, and he uses this symbology um, to, to illustrate the way that it is when we accept Christ. See, when we get married, we say, till death do we part, right? And it's the same type of relationship. The, the, when we say yes to Jesus, we're creating a covenant relationship that is, so, is to last forever. And so um, it's not that, that Jesus is loving us for better, right? He's really loving us for our worse. And we're going to get into what all that means in just a moment, but, but just think about what you bring to the table when it comes to to what your, your value that you add to God. See, God is self-sufficient, so he doesn't need us, but yet he chooses, right? He chooses to love us in spite of our flaws. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the most famous verses, it says in John 3.16, right? Now, I know this in King James because at my seminary we were like old school, so when I quote this, I know it's a different version on the screen. But it's for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but has everlasting life. So when you think about this verse, okay, I bet almost everyone in here knows it. And sometimes because we have familiarity, there's a saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. I want you to think, no other religion in the history of the world offers this promise. What other God sent their only begotten son to suffer and die on a cross, not because the people were aligned, not because they were faithful, not because they were already giving worship. No, he, he sent his only begotten son to die for those that were far from him, those that were in unbelief, those that were rebellious. And he said that he loved them enough to give them his best. 
And I want you to think about that, that our church has always been a church that loves. We love fiercely. We love intensely. We want to love. We want you to walk in and know that you are loved. As a matter of fact, I would say sometimes we love in a way that makes people feel uncomfortable. Like, like when they walk in and you're like, hey, love you, you know. And like some of you are like, ah, I don't know you, bro. Like, you know, that's... It's a little odd that you're saying that to me, right? And they like kind of like reject it. And you ever like try to hug a guy that's like a non-touch guy? You know, that's, I, I embrace the awkward there. It's like, come here, come here, you, you know. Um, but, but God loved like that. And so we are trying to create a culture that is going to love more than what people deserve. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, you can't imitate Christ without emulating the way that he loved, right? Because if we're Christians and we follow after Christ, then we must emulate to a lost world, to a dying world, the same love that Christ gave to us. As a matter of fact, he goes on, and we'll look at this verse that talks about when Jesus was getting ready to pass, just before he went out and was arrested and crucified, it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come that he was going to depart from this world and return back to the Father. This is all speaking of the cross. And it says, this is how he loved. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I don't know how that hits you, but that just, that just gets me. That he loved them to the end. That he loved us to the end. To his last breath, he loved us. That he gave all that he had and everything that was in his power to give so that you could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter how broken your relationships are in this world, there is a love that is greater than all the things you've ever lost. And that love is something that we need to receive here today and then we need to reflect and reciprocate to a lost and dying world. And the church said, amen. If he's ever loved you like that, put your hands together right now. Come on. He loved you. He loved you. I don't even know if you needed to hear that today, but God loves you. He loves you. No matter, you tell oh, Tim, you don't know. Hey, I don't know, but he does. And he says, I love love you. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at three instances that I think are going to inspire us, but I also want to look at them as a reflective uh, exercise. So I think you're going to see yourself inside of some of these stories today. And then as I remind you of yourself and when you were in positions of unlovableness, um, that, that when he loved you like that, I hope that I might remind you that he loved you, but then I might inspire you to love others. Because I think, I have a little bit of a fear that sometimes as we progress in Christianity, that we become a little bit jaded. And we kind of gather what we need, and it's like we received Christ, and now we're good, and then we have a, a marriage Maybe we have some kids, we have our career, and then I don't really need anyone else. I don't need anything else. And you, you maybe miss the point of the exercise that it's, it's not about what you need, it's about what they need. 
And if someone loved you enough to meet your need with the gospel, then we should be inspired to want to replicate that in our own lives. And so maybe, maybe you've forgotten how to love. I hope that I can help you today and that we might be inspired afresh with Jesus. All right? So let's go. Uh, we're going to look at the ugly, the unlovable, and the unsolvable. The first one is the ugly. Now, you should never say to a woman that you are ugly, okay? That is not cool. Um, so we're really talking about an ugly situation. Um, and in John chapter 8, there is a woman that is caught in adultery. And there's a lot, there's a lot that is like in this background. And I'm going to be summarizing these uh, t today, but... Uh, Sometimes conversations and love can become really complicated. Would you guys, would you guys agree? Because there's no one in here that says, like, adultery is good, right? No one, no, one, no one in here is like, yeah, I'm, I'm pro-adultery, right? That's not, that's not something you're voting for. Okay, everybody agrees. However, gosh, you know, something that is so simple, so cut and dry, so evident in the truth of it, comes into question... Um, in this story. And that's what's really going to challenge the fabric of how we love. Because here is this woman that is caught in adultery. And I don't know, I don't know if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been caught. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been caught doing something that you shouldn't do. Um, but man, it's a, it's a humbling, embarrassing feeling, right? And here this woman is, is obviously, she's, she's not innocent, she's guilty. And she's caught in the act of adultery and these religious leaders. And so this, this would be people like, like me. So think modern day priests, pastors. Um, these religious leaders um, had, had taken this woman and they, and they brought her before Jesus. And this is where it gets really interesting and it gets really complicated. Um, you know, because like when you, when you say, I love you, right? And you say, I do and you get married, okay? That is like the simplest, simplest thing when you do it. But then living out marriage, can anybody say amen? It's complicated. Anybody say amen to that? Like it's, it's like, it's the most complicated relationship that you will ever have, okay? And so, so I hope that you can see that there's some parallelism in this. And so they're bringing her before Jesus. And, and here's some backstory that you need to understand to set this up, um, the religious leaders in that day were struggling with what to do with Jesus. You see, Jesus was gathering a crowd. And in today's culture, we might even say he was gathering clout. And they looked at his crowd and his clout, and they were not like, man, look at that guy. That guy was blind, and now he sees. That person was paralyzed, and he said, rise and walk. There was a dude named Lazarus, went to a funeral, and all of a sudden popped out of the, the grave and was hopping out, and they unwrapped him. Like, like way to go. That's amazing. That, you would think, right? You would think that's the way you would react. But see, as Jesus' crowds grew larger, their crowds grew smaller. And somehow, these men of God, quotes, had 
changed their passion. I'm sure they started off, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt, with good intentions. But now they had moved from the glory of God to the glory of man. Right? And now it wasn't about how can we influence people with the gospel. It was how big can we grow it? How much money can we make? How much power can we gain? And then Jesus comes on the scene and all of a sudden he's taking now what they felt like belonged to them, which in reality it never did because church isn't about how big can we grow it? How much money can we make? It's about people at the end of the day. It's about loving people. And the church said, Amen. So, so what happens when ill intentions start to weaponize God's word? This is where it gets complicated. Okay, this is incredibly complicated. Imagine someone weaponizing God's word. See, Jesus, the Bible says, is the word. He wrote the word. He became the word. And so how does Jesus disagree with himself? Because he wrote the words that they're going to weaponize. So they bring this woman in before him, and they said the Old Testament, right? It says that if someone is caught in the act of adultery, that you have to stone them to death. Now, this is what, this is like meta, okay? Sub-level, like, they knew that Jesus wasn't going to want to stone her. So they were trying to entrap him because he was a gracious God. Now imagine that. They, they, were, they thought that they could entrap him because of his goodness, because of his mercy, because of his grace. And so they wanted to parade this person. And now they weaponize God's word. And when preachers, pastors, priests weaponize God's word, who suffers? Who suffers? The people. The people suffer as a result of preachers with wrong or bad motives. So they bring this woman in before Jesus and they weaponize the word. Now see, you have the letter of the law and then you have what? The spirit of the law. You have the, the, the exactness and you have the heart that's behind it. And they bring this woman in and they throw her there on the ground and they're like, Jesus, now what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with this person who is obviously guilty, obviously caught red-handed in the act? And I want you to begin thinking about that. Sometimes church, when you have wrong motives and you have wrong intentions, on the stage, church can become a gotcha game. Has, it, has anybody ever felt like that? You ever been in a church where a preacher's like setting you up like a lawyer and he's like, yeah, boom, guilty, sinner, loser, you're going to hell and now you need fire insurance and I'm selling, right? And I think, I think, I think it's just a little bit more nuanced than that, right? And so the letter of the law said she was guilty now, what is Jesus going to do? What is love going to do? He says to all the accusers, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop their rocks. Now, I don't know if you ever have thought about it, but can you imagine the sound of each rock hitting the ground. Can you imagine being the guilty? The woman who is awaiting her earned fate. Hearing the sound of forgiveness. 
Every rock that hit the ground, she was closer to escape. She was closer to rescue. You see, Jesus understood that she was guilty. But he also has grace. And so after all the accusers had left, it says that Jesus stood up and he said, where are your accusers? She says, they've all gone. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Now watch this. This is the beauty of it. Whenever we're thinking about love you more than you deserve, more than you deserve is God saying that he's giving his best for our worst, that he's giving mercy for our mistakes. And so you could walk into church today having made the worst mistake ever and some bad intention preacher could stand up here and say how guilty you are, how guilty you are, how guilty you are, and that would be so obvious, that would be so surface, because the truth of the matter is, we are all guilty. We are all, and, and come on, please don't ever become the Christian that is the first to pick up the stone, right? So many people sitting in church are so judgmental of other people. We want to be the church that loves, and we give our best for their worst. We give mercy for mistakes. We try to find ways to love and forgive before we condemn. Grace always gives a chance to escape. And here is Jesus. He's not condoning, but he is not condemning. Love does not look the other way, but love also tries to find a way to give grace. Wouldn't you love to go to a church that loved like that? That you find the golden measure that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law? Come on. If we wanted to pick up rocks this morning, who among us would be standing at the end? All of us have done terrible things, but we just didn't get caught. But here is God standing in front of this woman, and she deserves what they were trying to give her, and yet he finds a way to forgive. Man, I want to love like that. I want to love like Jesus did, and I want to try to find a way to forgive people. So that when people walk in here, we're not Pharisees trying to play the gotcha game. We're not trying to weaponize God's word for our own earthly gain, but we're trying to see sinners who are desperately broken. And I look at you today and I say, where are your accusers? They've all gone because if you've received God's grace, you are free. You are forgiven. You have been made clean. And the church said, amen. God specializes in the ugly. I guarantee you some of you have been in some ugly situations. Now we'll talk about the unlovable in Luke chapter 15, there's a story of the prodigal son. And I don't know how you guys are, but I, I do not like waste. Does anybody else, by show of hands in here, anybody not like waste? Was anybody raised in a household where you were, like, scolded if you wasted anything by show of hands? Anybody in here? Like, in my house, like, you were taught to take care of things, okay? Like, if you broke something, you probably got broken yourself, okay? It's like, it's like jeans, like, like I wasn't allowed to lean against the car because your, your jeans, like, see? See, how old are you, Donnie? He's in his 60s, okay? So, so you... 
you, I was taught, like, you know, like, waste not. Okay. Now, imagine, like, you were a boomer looking at a Gen X back in the day. You were like, what a wasted generation. Look at this generation. They took, you know, all the good songs. They turned it into, like, Def Leppard. Pour some sugar. Like, what's going to come of this generation, right? And now the Gen Xers are getting up there, and that's my generation. And we look at the millennials, and we're like, look at these people. Like, Taylor Swift is their Messiah, you know? It's like, now she's invaded football, you know? It's like, enough, Taylor. Enough. Stay in your lane. The Swifties are coming for me now. <laughs> Whenever I see waste, I got to be honest with you, it, it just bothers me. Like in my household, we're, we're water bottle drinkers, and we have Ozarka, that's our water of choice. And, and all over my house, there'll be, there'll be half-drank water bottles. But no one ever claims a water bottle! Somebody help me out here. Somebody help me out. Is this wrong? Is this wrong? I feel like it is a moral, a moral uh, crisis for me. Anyway, I'm just trying to get you to see that a lot of us, we look at waste and we see that as wrong. As a matter of fact, I would say that, that I, was, I was raised near, near miser level, okay? My dad's an accountant, and I don't know if that just got passed on, but I don't know if you are like me. Like, is anybody else like watching the numbers grow? Does anybody else enjoy that? Like, I do. I just like, oh, look, more, you know? And whenever there's less, I feel like, oh, I feel like I lost part of my soul, you know, that there's, there's less in my account. And so you got to be careful with that, right? Because like before long, you're just, you're almost addicted um, to hoarding, and then you become a miser, and then it's like, the thing that you think brings you security is actually becoming your master. And like, that's a whole other sermon. But, but I'm just trying to get you to see that here is this, this, this prodigal. And he goes to his dad with all the entitlements of, you know, ugh. just imagine like there was a younger generation who just felt entitled but didn't want to work for something. Just, <laughs> just throwing it out there. Just, I don't even know who they are. I don't know what their names are, but just... Let's just throw it out there. Let's just imagine. This guy goes to his dad. His dad has earned. His dad has worked. His, his dad has slaved and saved. And his son's like, I want my money and I want it now. And you can imagine this, this father. He seems like a wise person as Jesus is crafting this parable. And he's like, you know, all right, son, I'll, I'll give it to you. But, you know, there's this feeling of like, you know, I hope you'll use it right. I hope you'll take care of it. You know, it's pretty unlovable when you see someone take what the father saved all of his life for, and what does he do? He goes out and he wastes it. He wastes it like if, if it was in America, he went straight from Texas to Vegas, okay? And he literally spent all of his money in Vegas doing Vegas things, okay? And after the money ran out, he's sitting there in the mess that he made. You can't say that like, oh, you know, it was an honest mistake. And like, oh, I just fell into. No, no, no. This was intentional bad be And you know that it can, along the way, there was like little flashing lights in his brain. Like, hey, you know, the money's running out. Hey, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm involved with all of these women, but yet I'm not... 
feeling like my heart is any more full than, hey, I'm eating at the pig trough. Like, it's not going well, you know? There's a progression here, and it's progressing the wrong way. And it says that he, he came to his senses. And you know what his revelation was? He said to himself, in my father's house, there are servants that have it better than I do. Now, I know that I've wasted it. I know I've messed up. I know I can never be reinstated as a son again, and rightfully so. But if I can return and just be a servant, then I would have it better than I have it now. Now he has to start what is, in my estimation, the hardest decision, right? The hardest decision is returning home having lost it all. You know how hard it is to admit that you are wrong? Man, I know that Nolan, where's Nolan at? Oh man, you're getting ready to get married, okay? I got to help you out, okay? There's three words you're going to have to learn to have a successful marriage, okay? We're going to repeat after me. I was wrong. All right. Guys, am I right? Am I right? Say amen if I'm right. I, just learn it. Embrace it. You say, Tim, what if I'm not? Just say it. Trust me. Just, just say it. Lose the battle, win the war, okay? Man, if ever there was an I told you so moment coming in this guy's life, if you're the father and, and you've been sitting there waiting, just feel like I told you so is coming. And this son has to get up and return to his dad's house. And everyone in here that has ever waited on your parents to get home after you've made a mistake, it is like, it's like you start rehearsing, right? And he's got a long walk home. And so you can just imagine, he's like, okay, so I was here, and then I was in Vegas, and some things happened, and there was a pig, and I, you know, and, and he's trying to, you're trying to create a version that you're going to share that somehow makes it make sense. It's like um, whenever I was a young person, now kids today, they don't have a chance, but used to report cards um, got mailed, right? And if you, if you timed it just right, if you were a latchkey kid, you could take an eraser and you could turn a D um, into a B, okay? Now, mine all look like A's, so I didn't have to worry about that. But anyway, my brother, though, was very creative. Anyway, and so you're sitting there, you know, trying to make it make sense. And, and what do you do when you get to a version? What do you get when you get to a place that there is no version of this that's going to make sense? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there to where there's, there's not a logic there's not a facade. There's not some icing that we can put on this thing. It's just what it is. You've blown it. You've made the worst decision. You didn't manage it well. You didn't obey the warning signs. You just dove headlong into what you thought was best. And now you've got to face the music. All the way home, he's ready for the regret. And it says that he... He crests the hill, right? 
And the father sees him, a silhouette of his son. And it says that the father goes running out. And this is the exchange that they had. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Confession. Confession. If you want to come home today, confession and repentance are the price. Man, confession will set you free. It's not to make you feel guilty. It's to make you feel clean. Come on. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Any good parent in this room, imagine, imagine how your heart would break into a thousand pieces if your children ever said to you, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, to be your daughter. What is the father's reply? The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Get the king crab and get the steak. We are going to have a party for this my son was dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. You see, the father was able to move past the pettiness of fault finding when mercy and forgiveness were at stake. Man, don't you want a father like that? I mean, it's not that the son wasn't wrong. It's not that the son hadn't wasted everything. But man, if your child ever gets away from you and they get out there into the abyss, if they get out there into the world, they get out there into darkness, you are praying every day that they would just come home. And when they finally walk through those doors, it's not about what happened, what'd you do, where were you at, what were you thinking. It's like, man, my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. Don't you want to walk through the doors of a church that doesn't matter? We don't want to know how you got there. We want to tell you there's a love that can set you free. This, my child was dead and now they walk through the doors again. They were lost, and now they're found. Man, that's the kind of church I want to be. If Jesus loved like that, then we can love like that. Quit trying to nitpick people. You sit around all the day, man, trying to judge about how someone else wasted their grace. <laughs> Come on. God loves when his children walk back through that door. And some of you... I hope we're that church for you. I hope if you've been away from God for a very long time, that you would have the strength to repent of one of the most debilitating sins, the sin of believing that you know better than God. You ever been there? You ever thought that you knew better about how to do your money? That you knew better how to, how to do this relationship thing? That you knew better than how to parent the way that God says to parent or to run your company, you knew better. And man, if you do that long enough, God will humble you. And after you've wasted those opportunities and you've wasted that marriage, you wasted that parenting opportunity, I hope that you'll have the fortitude to remember it was better at my father's house. It was better at my father's house. And when you walk through those doors, you're not a servant. 
He calls you son. He calls you daughter. You see, more than we deserve, God can love the unlovable. The last one we'll talk about today is the unsolvable. And that is the story of the man on the cross that was next to Jesus. It says that uh, there were two thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus. And Luke 23 goes through this whole story. But today when we think about unsolvable situations, here is this man. And in order to be crucified, you had to, it wasn't like he, he stole, you know, a candy bar at the racetrack. You know, I mean, he had done something, right? And now he's been convicted and is subsequently being crucified for a mistake that he made. He's guilty. And as he's hanging there on this cross, it says that there was a thief to the left, a thief to the right. And tradition holds that the thief on the right is the one that repented. And so when you see depictions of Jesus, he'll always have his head turned to the right. And that's what he's doing. He's looking at the thief that was on the right. So they both started off railing against him. But at some point in this interaction, six hours um, on the cross, it says that the, the thief on the right had a change of heart. And he began to rebuke the other guy. And he said, why are you condemning this man who has done nothing wrong? Now think about it. This guy is suffocating. So when you're on a cross, your chest is not allowed to expand. So you have to push up on the nail that's, that's between your feet in order for your lungs to expand for you to get a breath. And here this man is eventually going to suffocate to death, but in the midst of this moment, he's losing, he's getting ready to die, and his request of a dying and desperate man, he looks to Jesus, and he says to him, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now, I want you to think about how bad of a predicament this is, because, you know, we want to sometimes dress the gospel in a religious facade. We want to brand it with a banner of a denomination. But this thief that is hanging on this cross, he doesn't have time to come down and get baptized. He doesn't have time to come down and join a church. He doesn't have time to come down and tithe. He doesn't have time to come down and have a priest take his confession. He doesn't have time to come down and observe communion. He doesn't have time to sign a card and join a brand. He doesn't have time for that. All he has is an opportunity to say to Jesus, will you remember me? Can you solve the unsolvable? And Jesus looks at him in Luke 23, 43, and he says, today, sir, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, wait a minute. I thought, I thought being saved was about all this other stuff. What if I told you that it's really all about Jesus? That is not about anything else. We do all the other stuff out of gratitude, out of obedience, but that doesn't save us. You know what saves us? Being on the right side of the man in the middle. If you would reach out today by grace, or by grace, by faith, to the cross that was in the middle, Jesus looks at you and says, yeah, you deserve to be exactly where you're at. But when we love more, then what people deserve, it says, even though you've done those things, I can still save the unsavable. Now listen to this. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'll close. 
whenever the Israelites were getting ready to go into the promised land and there was a prediction that they would eventually be scattered. It says that Moses recorded this promise. He says, now what I am commanding you to do this day, which was to turn to the Lord and to follow him with all of their heart and with all of their soul, to love God. He says, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. You see, if you find yourself in an ugly situation, if you're feeling unlovable or you feel like you're in a mess that's unsolvable, man, I'm telling you, this is how you start feeling. You start falling into fatalism and you start thinking that there is no hope. Moses wanted you to know, Deuteronomy wanted you to know, Joshua wanted you to know. He says, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you might ask, who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you might ask, who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it? He said, no, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you may obey it. You see, sometimes we get so far from God that we feel like I've done too much. I've made too many mistakes. I've wasted too much time. I've gotten myself into this. And now I guess my lot in life is to pay that price and to live in regret, to live in the fallen state, to live in the guilt, to live in the shame, that that is my fate for the rest of my life because of some mistake that I made along the way. I hope that you would see these three lessons, these three witnesses, that they would testify to you and that you would hear this word. It's not out of reach. Forgiveness isn't out of reach. Fixing the marriage, it's not out of reach. Allowing your child to find truth and return back home, Man, that's not out of reach. It's not up in heaven that he put it so far that you couldn't get it. It's not across the sea that you have to do some Herculean effort. You know what you have to do? Believe. He made it so easy that you could do it right now, that you could do it today. It's already in you. Trust me. God has already put it in you, that there is something in you that desires to be reconciled to your maker. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he loved you to the end. I hope today when we sing in just a moment that you might be reminded of the love that he gave to you. And I hope that you might give it back to him. And then as that changes you, that you might give it away to them. Let's pray. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, God, we worship you because you are worthy, God. I pray today that for someone who has been in a church that weaponized God's word and only told them how bad they were, God, we couldn't agree more. We are all sinners in need of grace. But God, there is a love that supersedes our guilt and our shame. God, I pray that we would receive that today and be made whole. That any prodigal, any prodigal that is in the room is allowed to come home at Genesis Metro Church. And that there is no situation that is unsolvable. There is no sinner that is unsavable. If you have 
breath in your lungs, you have an opportunity to receive the love and the life of Christ. Would you stand and worship with us? Church, put your hands together. Let's worship God.